0: So, because the people were focused on surviving and focused on building homes, a lot of them began to drift from focusing on things spiritual. For some of them, spiritual things were what you did in your free time, and they didn't have any free time. And church leaders, after a decade, began to realize that the church membership had drifted spiritually.
1: Hello, and welcome to Saints. I'm Shaylin Back.
2: And I'm Ben Godfrey. And in today's episode, we will be talking about Chapter 17, The Folks Are Reforming.
1: Today, we're very excited to welcome Richard E. Turley, Jr. He's the former assistant church historian and recorder. Welcome, Richard. Thank
2: you. Good to be here. Many of our listeners will know you from books that you've written, Specifically, the book titled Massacre at Mountain Meadows, which was published with Oxford University. Oxford University Press, 2008. And we're so excited to have you here because in this chapter, we see some of the events that led up to, that contributed to this horrible catastrophe of the Mountain Meadows Massacre. But that's actually not till chapter 18. So we're hoping today you can help us understand what has come to be known as the Reformation of 1856 and 1857. What is this Reformation movement?
0: To understand the Reformation, you have to understand that it had been 10 years since the Saints left Nauvoo. And during that decade, their focus necessarily, because of circumstances, had been on surviving. When they left Nauvoo, many of them had insufficient means to get them across Iowa when they got to winter quarters, a lot of them suffered from malnutrition and other ailments that led to, to death and to other problems that, that occurred. And so by the time the first company reached what became Utah in 1847, they were focused mostly on just trying to survive for the rest of that year. The first group arrived in July. They needed to plant crops. They wanted to have enough crops to be able to get them through the winter. More people arrived after that the large population didn't have sufficient means to live very well. During that winter of 1847 and 1848, people scrounged to find enough food to eat. And so, surviving on what they had became their focus. Now, with the gold rush of 1849, emigrants began coming through the area and provided some additional materials that they didn't otherwise have, but they were always just sort of one step ahead of starvation. And so, church leaders were focused on trying to have people store enough food and other necessities to live in case of a catastrophic year. So because the people were focused on surviving and focused on building homes and focused on doing other things that were of a pioneering nature, a lot of them began to drift from focusing on things spiritual. For some of them, spiritual things were what you did in your free time, and they didn't have any free time. And church leaders, after a decade of watching people do this, began to realize that the church membership had drifted spiritually. So they wanted to do something to revive that spirituality. Now keep in mind that this first generation of church members had been through that era in American history that we often refer to as having revivals, spiritual revivals, the Second Great Awakening. So they immediately thought of what their background experience had taught them about how you get people spiritually charged up. You have a revival, if you will. So church leaders in Utah decided to have what they called the Reformation, essentially a a gigantic multi-month revival in which they talked to the church members, often in very strong terms, to try to motivate them to have more faith, to repent, to obey commandments that they weren't obeying.
2: When you say they, who's they? Is this the Quorum of the Twelve, other church leaders? Who's giving these speeches, and when does the Reformation sort of begin?
0: It begins really in earnest in 1856. There, of course— preliminary events that occur that start to lead up to it but it begins in earnest in 1856 and it's led by the first presidency in quorum of the 12 and particularly one counselor in the first presidency Jedediah M Grant and he becomes the sort of initial hard driving force behind what went on others then echo that but Brigham Young himself got in into it as well he talked about the necessity of speaking strongly to the people in order to get their attention. Remember, his background was that he came from a family in which he had a very harsh father. As he put it, with my father, it was a word and a blow, but the blow always came first. So he was, he was accustomed to being raised in a very harsh environment. And to his credit, he was not himself a physically violent person, but he did speak often in very, very strong terms. He had a hard time controlling what he called his unruly member, a New Testament term for the tongue. And so he often spoke in very, very strong terms, but he also said that I don't always mean what I say. I try to get the people's attention with that. But he used strong rhetoric, as did Jedediah M. Grant and some of the other church leaders. And the results of that strong rhetoric were mixed. Some of the people indeed did reform and repent and grew in their spirituality and kept records that lead us to believe today that, in fact, the Reformation did have a positive side to it. The negative side was that many people responded to that harshness by feeling negative feelings towards the church and its leaders. Some left the territory. Some felt like they were treated harshly. Some of the activities that went on during that time period, because they were encouraging repentance and because policies on repentance hadn't developed as fully at that time, people began to sort of follow an earlier model in which people confessed their sins publicly. That's a model we see in the very early days of the church, and it tracks over from some of the religious traditions people had before that. Over time, if you follow the, the Doctrine of Covenants, you see that that began to give way to confessing in, in private. But during this time period, you get a revival. This idea of confessing sins in public. So, people stood up in public meetings and confessed their sins. And the idea also arose that if you weren't willing to confess your sins and be rebaptized to show your recommitment, that you'd be punished. And that punishment in the rhetoric included uh, language about having a person's blood be shed in order to atone for the sins that they had committed during that time period. So that was the strongest teaching that came from this time period was this idea of the necessity of shedding blood. Now, the historians, myself included, have looked far and wide for instances of that. And the number of instances that appear to be driven by that rhetoric leading to extreme violence are relatively small, but they, did, they do exist. For the most part, however, the rhetoric was largely that. It was rhetoric. It did not lead to violence. But there was excess. Uh, We we look back now in this time period, and we, we clearly see that there was excess.
2: There's a quote here from the book that I was grateful to learn. Let's just listen to this that talks about this idea of needing to atone for one's sins.
3: Tell the young man to go and sin no more. Repent of all his sins and be baptized for the same, Brigham replied.
0: So with that part from the book, what you see is that Brigham Young's strong public rhetoric has to be compared to his very charitable private counseling that he gave. The problem occurred when people took him literally at his word, and so that same church leader who sought that counsel on another occasion decided not to seek counsel— and although the the evidence on it is not as conclusive as we would like it to be, it appears, looking at the totality of the evidence, that he probably had that person um, punished to the point of death
2: for his sins. Oh, my goodness. That's really, really difficult to even understand how they could get to this point. Can you help us understand what is it that's driving them to feel so threatened?
0: Well, there are several things that are making them feel threatened. One of those things is that when they left the organized united states they did so because they felt that while the us constitution guaranteed them civil rights there was no application of that at the state level and in fact historically as we know now in retrospect it took a civil war in the united states and you know the amendment to the us constitution as well as a lot of civil rights legislation to begin to apply civil rights legislation equally across all of the United States, and we're still not totally there today. So recognizing that they had even less in the way of civil rights enforcement in those days, they finally decided we're going to leave the organized United States, we're going to go west, and we're going to build our own kingdom. When they left the organized United States, however, the United States was in a battle with Mexico that resulted in American conquest that took some Mexican territory and ended up providing it to the United States. And so they left the United States only to come into United States possession. Right. They applied for statehood, and instead of statehood, they received territorial status. And territorial status was much like colony status. A lot of the direction you received came from someone far away. And that, of course, led them to feel as though they weren't being governed according to their own local standards, but were being governed by standards that with which they didn't agree. Uh, that feeling of threat plus the constant feeling that They needed to survive, and there were other forces coming in that were threatening them, I think, led to this excess.
1: So, during this time of Reformation, something that I read in the book really surprised me, and that was that people were being rebaptized. So, can you tell us a little bit more about why they were being rebaptized? In
0: the early days of the Church, again, before our current doctrines had fully developed, people who had sinned wanted to have a feeling of starting over, a feeling of being cleansed and purified. They'd look at people who were baptized and think, well, I wish I could be like that again. And so church leaders agreed that people could be rebaptized as a sign that they were recommitted. And that was done before the Reformation, well before the Reformation. You know, a lot of the saints who moved west were rebaptized as a sign of recommitment. But during the Reformation, rebaptism became a very popular and strongly advocated thing to do. And so many of the saints were rebaptized as a sign of recommitment. Today, of course, we understand the doctrine that the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, the bread and water that we partake of on the Sabbath day in our church meetings, has that effect of recommitment, sort of this regeneration. And so we don't do re-baptisms except for having a person re-enter the church today.
2: Speaking of the sacrament, another interesting thing that I think will be new to many people, it was certainly new to me, was that the First Presidency suspended the sacrament for a period of time. Let's listen to a little clip here from the book, and then maybe you can tell us what were they thinking and why did they do this.
3: The First Presidency, moreover, had instructed bishops to stop administering the sacrament in their wards until more saints were rebaptized and proved their willingness to keep their covenants.
0: I mentioned that there's been this, there had been this spiritual sliding that had occurred at that time. I think if, if we were to go to a congregational meeting in those days, which were, at least in the Salt Lake Valley, the, the main congregational meeting was in the tabernacle, and we were to tabulate the total number of people who were attending and then tabulate the total number of church members who were not attending, what we'd find is that the sacrament meeting attendance was abysmally low. And because of that, that was a sort of a key indicator that spiritually, from the vantage point of the church leaders, these people were not doing well spiritually. And so Mm -hmm. they decided that in addition to that, there were other people who came and just partook of it rotely without thinking very seriously about their own spiritual circumstances. So they wanted to reinforce the importance of the sacrament as an ordinance and the importance of worthiness to partake of it. During this time period, they did suspend it. It's not the only time they did that, but it's one of the most noted times that they did it
2: when were those other times? Was, have there been any in modern history that the not, first presidencies said, let's hold off and repent as a people?
0: Not really in, in modern history, but in during the Brigham Young era, it, it was done more than once.
1: I think it's kind of a neat sentiment that together as a group, they recognized that they needed to change and recommit together. What were the results of this Reformation period as far as the people's spirituality? Brigham
0: Young, essentially looked at the Reformation harsh as it was as a his term was emetic. It was something that caused the, to use that medical term, he was basically saying it caused the body of the church to cast off those portions that were not good, leaving behind those that were. And the people who endured the Reformation, remained faithful, went through the process of trying to increase their faith and to confess their sins and repent recorded, many of them, that they had a a genuine spiritual uplift, that this Reformation had its positive impact. So, as I say, we look back today and remember the Reformation for its excesses, uh, excesses that exceed pretty much anything we've seen in modern times. But we remember it also for the fact that for some people it was effective in accomplishing its objective.
2: Another piece that I'm hoping you can comment on for us these home missionaries. It mentions this in the book, and Shaylin and I doing a little bit of reading beforehand using the footnotes in Saints, we were able to find some of these original questions that were asked, and to us, it felt like almost like a Temple Recommend interview mixed in with the Ten Commandments, mixed in with some kind of Western frontier, did you brand my horse when it wasn't your horse? Kind. Of. What, what were these questions, and who were these people that were going around as home missionaries? So in the early days of the church,
0: going back to the very beginning, there are a very small number of church offices. And one of those offices is teacher. Over time, the teachers became those who went from household to household. And as the scriptures point out, they tried to be with and you know, strengthen them and try to help them in their, grow in their spirituality. During the Reformation, these teachers gave way to a formal home missionary program in which they were required to go from house to house in much the same way as what we call ministering brothers and sisters are today, or what we used to call home teachers. And as part of that, they would ask very direct questions of the the type that would be asked today only by a priesthood leader in a private interview. Uh, You mentioned that these seem very similar to temple recommend questions. In the early days of the church, when a person wanted to enter a temple, of course, by this point, there had only been two temples and those two temples were the Kirtland temple and the Nauvoo temple if you wanted to enter one of those you didn't you, you did get a recommend in Nauvoo but the requirements for the recommend were not uh, universally what they are today with these questions that began being asked during the reformation you really have in many ways the forerunner of the temple recommend questions we have as you mentioned that there are some of the questions used during the reformation that we don't use today because they were very contextual to the time. Did you, you know, did you take your neighbor's horse or other animal and ride it without permission? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, those kinds of things are not asked today, but we do have, have questions today that go to the basic principles of honesty. And a number of the questions that were asked by teachers in those days did go to principles of honesty.
2: There's a, another individual that we meet in this chapter, Alan Huntington. He was one of the rescuers of the handcarts, So we think of him today, most of us, as this saintly person who risked all. And he was. He was great, right? But in the book, we also learn as part of this reformation, he had seen so much power of God that he did rejoice while traveling to meet the companies on the road and bringing them in, Mercy reported. He exhorted his young comrades to turn away from their follies and seek to build up the kingdom of God. His mother wept with joy. His father rose and declared it was the happiest time he ever saw. And the reason they're so happy is he had kind of been off track.
0: Well, this is just another symptom of what I mentioned in terms of the spiritual slide that occurred. The first generation Latter-day Saints who had known Joseph Smith and his brother Hiram personally and had been part of the early formative days of the church had that as a spiritual foundation. A lot of the youth who crossed the plains either without knowing these early leaders or having been very young at the time, were very much like the young people at the time of King Benjamin, as chronicled in the Book of Mormon. They didn't have the spiritual foundation. So when they reached Utah, a lot of them began to drift. As one visitor to Utah essentially said, he he found a generation of youth who were very good on a horse. They were good with a gun. You know, they were good with an ax or a knife, but they were kind of wild. And so a number of these wild, toughened young men were called upon to help with the rescue of the handcart pioneers. And they hadn't had these earlier formative experiences, and the crucible of rescuing the handcart pioneers became their refining moment. When they went out and found themselves in extremely difficult, almost impossible circumstances, rescuing people who were severely frostbitten, many of them deeply depressed mentally, and they had to somehow get these hundreds of people in that deplorable condition safely to Salt Lake City as best they could under the circumstances. And of course, many died along the way, many lost limbs. That was the type of crucible that caused someone like an Alan Huntington to get on his knees and seek the Lord's help and see that help being delivered And that became a converting moment for him, which he recognized in that passage that you just read.
2: It seems very applicable even to us today. So many times when we're asked to serve and when we sacrifice for others, then the Spirit comes and testifies to us that what we're doing is right.
0: That is correct. And as I said, there was this second generation that didn't have some of the early formative experiences that threatened to be lost without some type of spiritual refinement themselves. And for some of them, the Reformation was a a saving moment.
1: Another prominent member of the church who appears in this chapter is Parley P. Pratt. Can you tell us about what's going on in Parley P. Pratt's life right now and ultimately what, what happens to him?
0: Parley P. Pratt is a member of the Quorum of the Twelve. He had served faithfully in many ways. He and his brother Orson had been particularly influential in taking the revelations of Joseph Smith and systematizing them into an understandable body of doctrine for church members with their publications. He was also an ardent missionary. He was one of the church's first called missionaries who was sent on a mission to Missouri to preach to the Lamanites. And when he came west, he had a responsibility as the president of the Pacific. And that was essentially what we call the entire Pacific Rim today. So he went with one of his wives to Chile and tried to establish the church in Chile, saying that as part of his original mission, just an extension of this idea of preaching to the children of Lehi as he saw the people in South America. He didn't fully understand at that time that a lot of the people he was meeting would be actually of you know, European descent. He thought they were descendants of Book of Mormon peoples. And he later said uh, he should have gone to Peru. <laughs> that was his idea because he thought he'd find more up there. But he was a highly dedicated uh, individual. As I mentioned, one who had married plurally, as had many of the senior church leaders at the time, one of the people whom he married was estranged from her husband who was abusive to her, and she had left her husband and had Eleanor McLean, and she had left her husband Hector and had become a plural wife of Parley P. Pratt. And so she was in a what today we would call a custody battle with her estranged husband, and so she went to the lower, what we call the lower Midwest today, to try to get her children, and Parley followed her out there.
1: Did o- anybody know that Parley was following her out there?
0: Yes, it was known by some people. He didn't necessarily want it to be known, but uh, I've read an account of a missionary who was in what is today Oklahoma, and he mentions that Parley's passing through. And
2: Did he receive counsel? I, I seem to remember hearing that Parley had been told don't go after her at this time, or something to that effect.
0: Brigham Young discouraged Elder Pratt from doing that. Uh, He didn't feel it was appropriate at the time to do that. But Parley had his agency to make his own decision, decided to go east uh, to try to bring together these members of his family. But the estranged husband, Hector, tracked him down, followed him, and then shot and stabbed him to death.
2: Brutal. Now, the thing that really just kind of set me back was in reading in Saints, I learned that newspapers of the day celebrated this. Now, not Latter-day Saint newspapers, but newspapers in the East, they celebrated this brutal murder as though he had really done the community a good service by getting rid of Parley.
0: And what you're mentioning is, is part of American culture at the time, this idea that a man had control of a woman to the point where if she left him he could then he could take retaliatory measures against the man who was responsible for estranging her from him and there was a body of public ideas at the time that looked favorably on that kind of thing to be fair i have to say that it happened in utah as well and was supported by utah leaders and culture at the mm-hmm. time so this was just part of American culture at the time, this is notion of extra-legal violence, that if someone broke up a family, you could retaliate, and the law would either look the other way. In Utah, it was called Mountain Justice. Uh, in other parts of the country, you know, it went by different names. But Parley P. Pratt was a victim of that extra-legal violence of the day.
1: For a more positive story, there's another missionary, William Harris. And I actually loved this story about when he got set apart by President Brigham Young before he went on his mission. He had a sweetheart, Martha Ann Smith, and she just was saying goodbye to William. She thought that they would maybe get married when he got home, but Brigham Young counseled William to just marry her now. And so anyway, he runs into the room and he's saying, Martha, Martha, get your sunbonnet and come on. And he basically tells her like, we should get married. Let's get married. And so Martha turns to William's mother and says, what shall I do? What shall I do? And I can just imagine what what she's thinking. And this is one of my favorite lines, I think, from Saints volume book. two in the whole book. And so William's mother, Emily says, honey, put on the calico dress and go on. <laughs> And I can just hear her saying this to this girl who's now thrilled that she's going to be married, but then going on a mission, too, with her new husband. So can you just tell us a little bit more about William Harris and his assignment?
0: Sure. In those days, many of the men who were called as missionaries and and women in that day weren't called alone as missionaries. They would travel with their husbands from time to time. Uh, more so later than during this early time period. But it was not unusual for married men to be called as missionaries. And if a man was single and not yet married, but was was leaving behind a fiancé or a significant other, as we call them today, they might be encouraged by church leaders to go ahead and marry that person and either take the person with them, take the the spouse with them, or leave that spouse behind as a wife and not as a fiancé. And so this is a good example of that. It's something that's not unique to the church. You know, later on in in American history, when we have a lot of United States soldiers who are leaving for war, who are leaving behind girlfriends or fiancées, they often would marry and then go to war the next day. So it's not unique to the church, but it's a wonderful story. These two young people fell in love, and suddenly they found that they might be separated for years, only to have church leaders say, no, you don't, you know, you can go ahead and get married.
2: Let's circle back now to the Reformation movement and end this episode in talking just a little bit about George A. Smith. George A. is one of the apostles, and he's on the trail, meaning between Salt Lake and St. George. He's giving Reformation speeches. And let's just listen to a little quote here of some advice that he gave the members in the area.
3: Take care of your provisions, for we will need them, he instructed. He knew the saints would be tempted to help and feed the soldiers when they came, whether out of kindness or a desire to profit off them. Will you sell them grain or forage? George asked. I say curse the man who pours oil and water on their heads.
2: What exactly is George telling them to do and not to do when it concerns others coming through the territory?
0: Memories of that early winter of 1847 and 48 lingered. During that time period, it's very difficult for us today to comprehend, but the people who were living in Utah had nowhere to go to buy groceries. They were considerable distance away from any provisions that they could acquire, even if they had money, which most of them did not. They didn't have anything that today would you know, be circulating specie. And so a lot of them had to dig roots and take other steps just to survive. And if we saw them today, we would think of them as looking akin to starving people we often see in other countries. They were in that kind of deplorable condition. And so, church leaders never forgot that. And so, they strongly encouraged their members to store food. And when they were looking ahead at the potential of a multi-year conflict, they thought that there wouldn't necessarily be time to plant crops and that whatever foodstuffs they had on hand would be the foodstuffs that would be needed perhaps to survive for years in the mountains without an opportunity to... Again, this is a comparable scene in the Book of Mormon where you have the Gadianton robbers who come in and the people pull into the city right. and they don't have a chance to put in crops that year. Well, what happens if you eat up all your food and you're under siege? You're going to starve to death. So a lot of the leaders like George J. Smith strongly encourage church members not to give way to the temptation to sell what seems like excess food for things that might be hard to come by in Utah like clothing, or furniture, or stoves, or other things that would be very appealing to pioneering peoples.
2: And we will see in our next episode of this podcast that this conflict, this need to preserve resources, contributes to the massacre at Mountain Meadows in a really difficult way because the saints are unable and not encouraged. They're trying to preserve their food for themselves, and so it raises conflict between them and a wagon train that is passing through Utah Territory. That is correct. So we'll invite you to, to join us again next time on the Saints Podcast, where we will learn more about that. And as always, we invite your feedback at our email address, Podcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. Richard, thank you so much for joining us today. We so much appreciate your perspectives. And we would just invite our listeners also to put in your favorite search engine, Mountain Meadows Massacre, Turley, You'll probably have the first hit be an article in the Ensign, which is a wonderful article that gives a great overview of the massacre and what we know. And probably the second link will be a link to the book, which if you're curious at all about this episode in our history, it is the seminal work on the topic. And I would just encourage you to look for that and read it.
1: As always, we just want to remind you, For any of the topics that we cover and any of the people and events, you can always look up more topics, especially on the electronic version of the book, in the footnotes. Explore the footnotes and you can always learn more. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Shailen Back.
2: And I'm Ben Godfrey.